Welcome to Wyoming, My 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and recently I did something I've always wanted to do, which is to buy a quarter beef from a local rancher. When it came down to the details, I wasn't really sure how that worked, and this is what happened. First, I paid the rancher for one quarter of the weight of the cow that I bought. She transported that animal to the butcher, and then I paid the butcher per pound for their services. In the end, I picked up three boxes of packaged, labeled, frozen beef and brought it home. The cool thing was that I actually got to talk to the butcher beforehand about specific cuts that I like and other preferences, how thick I wanted my steaks, all that, and now I have local, delicious Wyoming beef. This reminds me of a funny story about my mom. She was from Bolivia, and everyone here in the U.S. called her Linda, although her full name was Flora Alinda Chiarella de Mowell, because that's how they say Mowell in Spanish. She first visited Wyoming as a newlywed in like the early 60s, and during one visit, my dad overheard her talking to my Bolivian grandma, Abuelita Marina, about her stay in Wyoming. He was very surprised to hear her say that people ate horse meat here. Well, after she got off the phone, Dad asked her, where did she get the idea that people ate horse meat here? She explained that Grandma Rose had told her that the freezer was full of meat because she had just bought a quarter beef. Then a few days later, she heard someone talking about buying a quarter horse. So she came to the conclusion that we eat horse meat in Wyoming. <laughs> Dad thought that was absolutely hilarious, and Mom loved to make him laugh, so of course she played it up. I've mentioned before that Wyoming has only 500,000 residents and 100,000 square miles of land. With very few cities, most of that land is wide open country, and it's almost evenly split between public and private land. Today's episode is about ranching in Wyoming and how it happens both on private and public lands. And you'll be treated to an interview with Mary Flitner, an author who has ranched her whole life here in Wyoming. She was so gracious to agree to be interviewed, and she hosted me at her house. You may hear some background noises, as you would expect at a home, but see if you can catch her husband, Stan, whistling in the background. I didn't even notice that until I started editing. Today I'm going to focus on cattle ranching, but I just want to quickly mention sheep. Sheep ranching was as popular as cattle in the late 1800s and is an important part of Wyoming history. In the early days of Wyoming, grazing land was plentiful for both sheep and cattle, and they grazed in open ranges on the mountains in the summer. Mutton and wool were much more popular then, and the industry was subsidized by the government, which made sheep farming viable. Now, I plan to delve into sheep farming in a future episode, including the sheep and cattle wars, which is an interesting part of Wyoming history. Before cutting to my interview with Mary, I want to talk about our dot on the map, Byron, Wyoming. Byron is on Crow ancestral lands in northern Wyoming between the Bighorns, and Yellowstone National Park. While it's not exactly a destination, Byron is definitely somewhere you may be driving through and you may even want to stop by to stretch your legs. It has a nice little one-room museum that's housed in the City Hall building. That little museum takes all of an hour to visit, 
and it primarily tells the story of the Mormon pioneers who settled the area. The town is named after Byron Sessions. He was part of the team that built the canal that allowed the Mormons to successfully irrigate and settle the country. The canal took over two years to build. Their biggest hardship came in the form of a sandstone bluff that was fully obstructing their path. They dug a hole at the base of the bluff with the intention of blasting it such that the bluff would fall into the hole. One afternoon, after much digging, Byron suddenly ordered the men to evacuate, and moments later, a huge chunk of sandstone split off of the bluff and fell into the hole. That bluff is now called Prayer Rock, and in awe and gratitude, the people of the town named it after Byron Sessions. Of course, after having heard that story, I had to see the bluff on my way out of town. There's a little parking spot and a historical marker there, but the museum, I think, tells the story in more detail, and I have a picture of that on the website. And it just reminds me, as I'm driving across our state and our country, that there's a story everywhere. Like, I would have never looked twice at that bluff, but now that I know the story behind it, I just think it's fascinating. While you're in town, I strongly advise you to buy some great Wyoming beef from 307 Meat Processors. They are right there on the main drag. This local butcher shop sells directly to the public. They're the ones I paid to butcher the quarter beef that I bought, but they also sell sausage and all sorts of cuts of beef directly to the public. It is nothing fancy, just great local beef. Now let's have a listen to my interview with Mary Flitner, author of My Ranch 2. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. A pleasure to have you here. I wanted to start off by reading the endorsement of your book. It's written by Wendell Berry, who is the author of one of my favorite poems of all times uh, called The Peace of Wild Things. And in it, he says, My Ranch 2 is an honest, plain-speaking book about a way of life and work that the author rightly understands as a vocation. And that just stood out to me. How do you, how do you see ranching as a vocation? It's interesting to me that you chose that phrase because vocation is a word that came to me also, and I've used it within the book. It was first expressed to me by a priest who helped us on the ranch he did it for kind of a hobby and a release, and we got so that we counted on his help. And we put him through some really exhausting days uh, on the ranch, and we wondered why he kept coming with us, because we just wore him out. And so I want to read this paragraph from the book. After a particularly exhausting day horseback in the high country, the kind when nothing went right, when the cattle were balky, the sun was hot, and we'd worked ourselves and our horses to a sweaty, plodding fatigue. I thanked Father Pete and apologized to him as we rode back to the corral together. I shook my head and tried to smile and a weak joke. What a day! I thought it might even make you take the Lord's name in vain. I don't know why you keep coming. I don't even know why we do. It's just ridiculous. Ranching's a disease, I guess. It's an addiction, maybe. A habit I can't break. 
Father Pete stopped his horse and turned toward mine. He took off his wide-brimmed cowboy hat, wiping his forehead as he nodded slowly. He spoke earnestly then and frowned a little. Mary, ranching is a vocation, and you must treat it respectfully. Your family has served this calling for more than a hundred years, and you are a part of that huge, raw story, a grand and powerful story, despite its uncertainties and challenges. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you. So, yes, it is. I think I've come to think of it as a vocation, as a responsibility, and um, my family's been in ranching for, oh, 150 years, and Stan's is over 100. Wow, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, was just tell us about your life growing up on a ranch. It was a great life. Uh, I had two sisters. I had no have no brothers. Our father treated us like we were just anybody else, you know, cowhands, whatever. Gender really wasn't a consideration, but we were expected to do our fair share of the work. We always did, and we always had horses. We always loved riding horses. All of us kind of grew into the work and grew to meet the job as they were expected of us. Well, you mentioned gender, and anyone who drives through Wyoming sees signs saying, Wyoming is cattle country and eat beef, and there on the on the script underneath it says that they're put up by a group originally called the Wyoming Cowbells, which they've renamed themselves into cattle women. But I wanted to ask you, is there such a thing as a typical cattle woman? Oh, I think the thing that would make them similar is their interest in the work itself, or their, uh, I don't think they have to work outside, or we, I should say, I don't think we have to work outside to be typical or to be engaged in ranching or to be involved. Some women like that, some don't. I happen to like it. The backup that a partnership of a man and woman have for each other is powerful in ranching, as in any other business. So you said that you did like the part of working outside. What are some of the other roles that cattle women have played? I think many of them, especially now with wonderful equipment and technology like we have nowadays, many of them are expert operators of all kinds of equipment, farm equipment, tractors, uh, trucks, loaders, all that kind of stuff. That's That's made women's life a lot more equal and a lot more fun and a lot easier uh, for men, too. Working without those kind of things was a lot different picture than now. How would you say ranching has changed from when you were a little girl working with your family on a ranch to an adult? Well, some things have not changed. I guess that would be an easier place for me to start. What has not changed is that the demands that the life makes of you, you know, you can't really do it part-time. Seasonally, there's work that changes. It varies from season to season. You know, it if you do it right, it's a full-time job. So that has not changed. The things that make it different, as I see it, are technology, you know, cell phones, for one. Equipment, as we mentioned, uh, I was born in 1942, so I'm no child. <laughs> and thinking of uh, vehicles and transportation, and we had a landline telephone, which was a party line, and <laughs> it was exciting when we got television to the ranch, you know, but now that's all completely changed. 
Another thing that has changed actual ranch work, as I see it, is horse trailers. When I was a little girl, as you were asking about, we started out saddled up at the barn and we rode to where the work was. And then we did the day's work and then we rode the horses home and put them away in the barn or the corral. And sometimes your workplace was a long ways from home. I saw a truck the other day and I was like, wow, that's from a local ranch. Like they have their own semis even. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, many do. Many do. Uh, a four-horse trailer was quite exciting when we got one here on Shell Creek. So where did they take the cattle to once they were, like, to sell them? To They would take it to the train, or? Uh, Grable had a sales ring. Most, there were, were sales rings throughout the state, I suppose. Uh, some were on the railroad. Early in my book, I tell about my grandfather bringing a herd of cattle they trailed him several hundred miles, and he was wanting to get to the railroad to an advantageous spot to load those cattle and sell them. And they had scales there, and uh, that was fairly common. Even, that's another thing that's changed a lot, too, at marketing, because mm -hmm. most people now sell predominantly on a video market, an online sale. So it's an auction, but it's done by video? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh. The guy comes, a fellow comes to your ranch, and he's got the camera, and he photographs your particular livestock, and usually he makes sure he gets a shot that shows the brand, you know, just for identification purposes. And the buyer then sees what the quality and condition of the cattle is. You make an estimate of the weight, and you know pretty well because you've been doing this for all these years, then these sales are widely advertised and they might have thousands and thousands of cattle on this online auction. The dates are advertised. Buyers sign up ahead of time. They can call in on the telephone. They can actually go to the site where the auction's being held. Maybe it's in Denver. They can do that if they want to. They can telephone in or bid online. And that's usually how we've sold that way for for lots of years now. And that way you don't have to haul your cattle there hoping you're going to get a good price for them. You can say yes or no right from your living room and you haven't moved your cattle anywhere. Well, I love the title of your book, My Ranch Too. And I was really intrigued by how that little comma and the word to changes the title. Can you just tell us more? What it says is that I'm a part of it. I get to help with the decisions. I get to make my choices. And I am engaged as much as anyone else because it's my ranch too. <laughs> well, I, you know, when you say the word rancher, immediately this picture pops up in your mind. And it's a man. For me. Yeah. But really, ranchers are women, too, mm -hmm. and daughters and sisters mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. wives. And so I love I love the title. I love the that little angle to it. I used that in the book in a couple of different spots, I think, and in a couple of different settings, referenced by the realization that life is never perfect for anyone. One of the reference conversations is with a friend of mine, and I said, well this just sounds awful. Why don't you leave? And she said, well, it's my ranch too. 
if I leave, we have nothing. Right. And I, you find that in conversations. It is a hard, a hard life in some ways physically for women. Emotionally, it can be hard. How is it hard? Emotionally? Mm-hmm. Well, th- now there we're going to probably stray into gender conversations <laughs> because men historically have dominated I mean, just by physical presence and physical size and physical nature of the job. So that has been the nature of the business. I guess what are the expectations of a of a ranch wife or, you know, of a ranch couple that can that can be such a pressure? Well, there's probably no two alike. I mean, marriage for anybody is right. marriage. There's there's always that and Whenever a family is in a business together, that's a whole different kind of pressure, probably whether it's father and son, man and wife, you know, there's a dynamic there that isn't easy to to step over. And yet when it works well, it is the strongest, the best. You know, you have the most loyalty, the most understanding. You have skills that each of you understands because you work together all these, all this time. So those are the positives. But Ranchers are human too, you know. Right. We, we all have hurt feelings and we all have anger and we all have embarrassments and all the same kind of things. And there they are right in the middle of your work day. It's not like you come home and tell your partner about it that night. I mean. Yeah, it's like you can't really get away from it. And the intensity of the work, mm-hmm, it never goes mm-hmm. away. Right. Well, it does at my age. <laughs> Your book goes into some detail about like succession planning for a ranch in a chapter that's called Ranch Divorce. And, you know, basically most families go through a difficult time, no matter what their resources or income level when the older generation passes on. So many families, all of us have seen that relationships break during that time with conflicts over who gets what. But the difference that I see with ranching that your book helped me see is that that succession with a ranch, if done right, happens when the older generation is still still alive. They're still there. And I think you have a unique perspective because you've gone through this experience both as the younger generation who took over a ranch and then later as the elders who handed it off to the next generation. My question is, what can the rest of us learn from your experience? Like, what can we do to make a difficult transition, one that doesn't break a family, but actually preserves family and traditions and relationships? Well, I suppose there's no two alike when it comes right down to it. What we learned from the experiences that we had, we felt like it was most important to do it out front and have everyone know about it and have everyone know what you were doing and why you were doing it. We had seen all kinds of those situations and some of them left families just in hurt and mistrust and anger and all of those things. And we did not want that. We had a huge loyalty to our own family and we had a huge loyalty to the land and the ranch. And I think that's what made it possible for us to push on and get this done because it just wouldn't be fair to leave that struggle to the next generation. They have to be able to plan too, we thought. 
our circumstances in all cases were different. Uh, some of the time, you know, a ranch family might have to pass the, the property on because of finances. Estate planning was a huge topic back about in the 70s and mm. in the 80s. That there was a huge estate tax that if oh. a family hadn't planned properly, they ended up, you know, having to sell property to pay the taxes. So a ranch really didn't remain intact, no matter how much you wanted it to. And so that brought a lot of attention to the topic itself. And then financial times that Stan and I went through and my sisters went through with my parents and Stan's parents were on, you know, we, we had, we had, we were sitting three generations of us then too, you know, our parents, ourselves, and then looking at our kids growing up. So there it was like, a, like a whole screenplay right in front of us. And so the years did go faster than we thought they would. We felt like we were just on top of the world when we took over the ranch for ourselves. Stan's parents were, I think, exhausted and ready to step aside. And ranching had reached a terrible marketing scenario at that time. Ranches were just on tilt. Many did not survive. And we didn't know if we would or not. But we thought the only way we would was if we divided that property so everybody could make their own decisions. So Stan's brother took part of this ranch and we took the other part. My sisters and I, my dad just told us what he was going to do pretty much. So they, uh, one sister and her husband remained on that ranch and went ahead with that decision making. Then Stan and I held things together here basically while our kids kind of grew up and got to be a very active part in helping us. We had four children, two girls and two sons. And I think now looking back that any one of them who wanted to could probably have figured out a way to make it work. Two sons have ended up in ranching. One is here with us. And we did that all above board, business-like, as clean as we possibly could and keep everybody as happy as we could. And I thought, well, if they're going to be mad at anybody, they should be mad at Stan and me because we were the decision makers that got us to this place. I don't want to check out of the world and leave my kids mad at each other over property. Right. And yet you do have a huge uh, sense of obligation to the land. Yeah, now that you say that, I mean, that just reminds me of how my parents handled, you know, their stuff. And I think you're right. That transparency is really important because you can still have conversations about it at mm -hmm. that point, as opposed mm -hmm. to just learning something when you're already kind of in a, a place of mm -hmm. struggle of mm -hmm. having lost, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And neither of us had to do that at a point of grief or at a point of a sudden change. You know, we were in every case able to see what was happening. We didn't like all of it, but we were able to see it for what it was. Yeah. Anytime you have multiple people, you're going to have multiple mm -hmm. perspectives and mm -hmm. different needs and in your book, you describe a rancher's year beginning in the spring with calving season, but I'm curious to hear just what is the cycle of a whole year of ranching? Like if calving is the start, what happens next and next? Some of that depends, I suppose, on the actual geography of where you live. In Wyoming, calving is pretty typically the spring season, and spring is new life, new hope new season, new everything. And so 
the cows are giving birth. All different ranches have different settings. So some of them are on pastures with some supervision. Some of them are out on open range. Some of them are actually in corrals. Uh, we calve what we say outside, which means they're calving. The older cows are calving on their own. We check on them for the most part. The older cows just calve on their own. So then uh, you work through that, and they're, the cattle are being fed often at, then to hay that you've put up because they need extra nourishment as the calf hmm. is born and grows up and demands more milk, and the cow needs to be able to provide that. So that's, that's part of spring. Um, you move on to turning them, in our case, out to open range then. You've branded them by then, and... Uh, the calves are big enough to travel easily and keep up with their mothers. And so we do that horseback. We trail them out to open range. And at the same time, your thought process is moving ahead because you need to be planting your crops and getting things ready for the next year. The Bighorn Basin geography, elevation, and water and irrigation is somewhat different from other areas, even in Wyoming because we have adequate, you know, temperatures and water and land for farming. Some areas do not have that and rely on almost completely on open range or perhaps they buy hay from some other areas. But we need to get ready for the next year's crop. So we have planting and tractor work and stuff like that. The cattle are, you hope, doing fine out on the open range that eases so that's done in the summer the planting and easy it's late spring late spring you want to have everything well ready to grow when the temperatures get hot you don't want to wait too late summer is farming here in the bighorn basin not everywhere but in the areas that grow hay you know that's pretty much summer and the for the livestock, sheep or cattle, it uh, requires that you keep an eye on the range where they are, make sure they're on adequate feed, make sure they've got water. That usually involves horseback work of moving them from pasture to pasture. Here, many people move to higher elevations, and that is the case in a lot of Wyoming. And that's where the so-called magic and romance, the, all the pictures you see or cowboys trailing their cattle off to some spectacular scenery but summer is producing feed for the next year basically the next so that's winter. why you can't keep them here because the fields they would be in are being used to mm -hmm. grow hay. Mm -hmm. right right okay yeah so when you see the pivots and you see the ditches and all that that's a whole process of its own getting ready to cut hay to bale it and store up for the day that you'll need it after that summer season, um, most ranchers, uh, let's see, in the fall, you harvest those crops, hay or corn here in the Bighorn Basin, some grain crops, and at the same time, you're getting your cattle gathered up and getting them ready to bring to a lower elevation because up higher, the water's run out, the feed's probably run out, it's going to get cold, it's going to freeze, you know, our cattle right now are at about 8,000 feet later on in the winter. A cow can survive up there, but they're sure not going to do very well, and they're not going to be fat and sassy at the right. end of the you winter. Right, you want them to be, yeah, to put yeah. on the weight. 
we wean our calves, most uh, whether someone else would have sheep, but you wean that young animal to let the cow replenish her own body for the next year. We wean on the mountain and leave the cattle up there, the cows, so that they can have a little fun, we used to say, <laughs> without the kids. <laughs> the time comes, to, we trail them down onto lower elevations, and in our particular case, we're able to leave the, the cattle out on range. Then we'd be in winter. Our cattle uh, are out on range most of the winter, we bring them home as the weather demands or as the feed situation that year might demand and start feeding them hay. And then they start to calve, and there you go again. Wow. So all winter they're nearby. Nearer. Uh, yeah, we have some that's quite a ways away. It can be a job getting them all gathered up and home. So your land that your family owns or owned isn't all one big piece. It's like chunks here and there. Ours is not. That'd be really nice if it was. Here in at this ranch, it's not. My sister, theirs in another part of the state, they, they have a lot that is contiguous, and that just looks so easy. <laughs> They've got it easy. So thank you for describing that year, because I, I, I see the cattle up, you know, on mm -hmm, the mountain, mm -hmm. but I don't see the mm -hmm, whole process. Mm -hmm. And from your book, I can tell that you seem to actually like working with cows and seeing their personalities and quirks. And in your book, you describe them, you know, individual cows as like, this one is grumpy or nervous or proud. How do you read a cow's personality? Like, if I look at a cow, I don't think I could say which one was grumpy or proud or happy. Well, it does take practice. <laughs> <laughs> but once you get interested, you'd be surprised how quickly you'd probably start to remember, oh, I don't want to go near her, you know, or, oh, that cow, she takes such good care of her calf. I never see her without her calf. This one, I think, well, it's the end of the day, and I haven't seen her with it yet today, <laughs> but I will before I, you know, I, there's a phrase in my book that I used, uh, that my dad had used to me when I said once, I don't see how those cows can even tell which one's their calf. They all look alike. And he said, don't you think your mother would know you in a train station? It's and true. And I think of that a lot. I was just intrigued by the whole personality things. Like, what does a cow look like when they're cranky? They aren't as aggressive as you might think. They shake their head or they just generally seem agitated or they seldom actually charge a human they will, though, if you provoke them enough, and it's in defense of their calf. They don't just take off across a field after a human that I know of. Uh, it's in protection of their calf, usually, and you wouldn't have any trouble. They snort and paw and shake their head. And... One time I was, I was hiking up on the mountains, and there was a it was a calf, but it was like a big calf. I don't know what the in-between is called, the teenage stage. Well, yearlings. <laughs> yearlings. Yeah. And all I can say is that now that you're saying this, it reminds me that he or she, I don't know, seemed so curious. There was a fence between us, but as I walked, the cow would come walking behind me. And if I stopped, they would stop. <laughs> 
and I would go up towards them and they would back uh-huh. off. It was like uh-huh. they wanted to see what was going on, but they sure. didn't want to engage. And I just thought that was so cute. I have so many pictures of that cow. If I if I can find it, I'll put Maybe yeah. it's one of yours. <laughs> you never know. Well, they are curious. They're yeah. like any animal, you know, in that way, a horse or, or wildlife, too. You've seen wildlife curious the, yeah yeah and at the end of our little or not at the end of the hike but we continued on but it, the fencing was such that the cow couldn't and after we were gone for a while I could start hearing it kind of bawling a little bit I was like he misses me <laughs> I just thought that was so cute well I mentioned that you'll see cattle up on public lands and as you drive through public lands whether it's the national forest or the BLM the Bureau of Land Management you'll see cattle and sheep grazing. And I'm just curious, how does it work for a rancher to get permission to graze cattle on public land? And is it different like BLM and forest? Uh, BLM and forest are two completely different agencies. BLM is in the Department of Interior and Forest Service is Department of Agriculture. So you've got two completely different agencies there's a concept called multiple use, which uh, you're probably familiar yeah, with. Yeah, I've that, seen that on the floor. Which means land of uh, many uses. Land of many uses, right. exactly that. Uh, grazing has received a lot of pressure. We do pay a fee by the head, and that's how you count livestock, by the way. You say by the head. You pay per day, per head. We feel like we're really good custodians of the land because we really care about it, and we've had that same land under our care for you know years and years so we really care and our our lifestyle depends on it so it's not like we're out to abuse the land right and uh, but is it literally just like an application process a form you fill out or well no it's not that easy because um the phrase is that you own a permit well you don't use you own it as long as you take good care of it and keep your payments in place it can't be taken from you by the agency. They can change the numbers if they feel like, say, you have a, you've used it for a long time for 200 cows, and they think, well, there's no longer enough water there. There's no longer enough grass. It's been completely overtaken by sagebrush. We need to cut your numbers. In your dreams, you might be able to say, Look what a great job we've done. We'd like to increase our numbers, but that that almost never happens. Is there much wiggle room anymore? Like if a new person, like if I go out and get 50 cows or whatever, can I? There is not, although conceivably there, there could be because lots of ranchers have gone out of business. But usually what happens is that the agency just reabsorbs those numbers and they don't offer those permits up for sale. I feel like multiple use is a good concept. I think it's going to be more important as we see more fires. I think a lot of this land would be way better off if it were grazed and the forage wasn't building as fuel for fires. Mm Mm-hmm. And another thing that seems to be taking over as grazing is diminished is sagebrush. Uh, And even wildlife doesn't thrive when the sagebrush gets too dense or the timber. So so sheep ranching is the same? Sheep ranching is quite a bit the same. There 
used to be a lot of sheep in the Bighorns. It used the Bighorn Basin well because of the kind of forage they eat. They they don't eat grasses as much as cattle do. They eat forbs, mm. which is a leafy plant. Sheep like leafy things, and cattle, they, they'll graze grasses, and they'll eat leafy stuff too, but the sheep were a good a good animal for a lot of the rangelands. It's just less popular now because people don't eat mutton. and. Well, no, it's, it's more work, for one thing. Mm. Predators is one factor. The market is a factor. And there used to be, way back, there was an incentive on American wool to counteract Australian wool or wool produced in other countries. That program was taken away, so that was... Lots of ranchers, sheep ranchers, had come to count on that. Um, I have three questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first one is, what is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize? You know, we have so many visitors zipping through on the way to our amazing national parks and such. Well, I think they may not realize that this vast landscape that they see is actually a place that someone else is very familiar with and responsible for and understands because it just looks like a lot of emptiness. And then you might see a cow and think, what is that cow doing <laughs> that clear out here? Does anyone know where she is? Will she ever get home? Or the reality is that, oh yeah, someone knows where she is. Someone's responsible for her. What do you think is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? Well, it's the only place I've ever lived, so I, uh, I'd i have to think a little bit about that. I suppose transportation, the distance between places, the weather. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just always assume you're going to pick a day and go someplace. Right. I learned that the hard way. I'm like, I'm going to go to Laramie, and then mm -hmm. they shut down yeah, the highway. Yeah, the roads are closed. <laughs> yeah, you're not going. <laughs> like, well, darn it. And then I know that it's hard to pick, but what do you love most about Wyoming? Well, that is hard to pick. The landscape, I think, and the land. And you do have this huge, all of us, not just ranchers, but lots of people have this huge sense of responsibility in protecting that land and, I don't know, a sense of ownership. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We could talk for hours. We probably <laughs> we <could>. will. <laughs> Mary talked about that sense of pride and ownership that we all have for the land, and that applies to the Wyoming wildlife I want to talk about today. We're so lucky here to regularly see a bird that represents all of us in the United States. I'm talking about the bald eagle, our national symbol. The bald eagle was not everybody's first pick. Ben Franklin, for example, was not a fan because the bald eagle is a carrion eater. Luckily, he was outnumbered because I think it's a magnificent animal and it's the only eagle that's unique to North America. It's a member of the sea eagle family and you can look for them soaring along bodies of water. Their wingspan is seven feet and the pads of their claws are rough, which helps them grab onto slippery fish that they snatch from the water. One of my favorite memories is canoeing down the bighorn and seeing a juvenile bald eagle 
drop into the water ahead of us and snatch a huge catfish out of the water and tear into it. Eagles mate for life. They begin nesting in February, going back to the same nest every year, and what a nest. It's the largest in the animal kingdom. They've been measured as big as 12 feet wide and 8 feet deep. I've had cars way smaller than that. The eaglets hatch in April or May and then leave the nest by June or July. They can take up to five years to reach maturity. During this juvenile state, they can be confused with the golden eagle because their signature white head feathers haven't come in yet. But look at their legs. If they have feathers on their lower legs, they're golden. And if not, they're baldies. And there's more to their story. They have risen like the phoenix from the ashes of near extinction. Their numbers had been reduced from being hunted for sport, and then they greatly suffered from exposure to DDT in pesticides. The DDT runoff got into the fish which were eaten by the eagles, so it didn't poison them directly, but it made their eggshells too thin and not hatch. DDT was outlawed in the 70s and eagles rebounded and are now off the extinction roster. While they're no longer endangered, they're still in danger of lead poisoning. As mentioned, eagles catch fish and also eat carrion. This brings them into contact with hunted carcasses and lead shot in the fresh meat. Lead poisoned raptors lose up to a third of their weight and their talons start curling up. When they're too weak to fly or even stand, they just die. I had the opportunity to meet Susan Ahalt of Ironside Bird Rescue outside of Cody. She collects injured birds and rehabilitates them. The eagles she picks up are mostly suffering from lead poisoning. Some become well enough to release into the wild and others go to zoos and raptor programs across the nation. After the pandemic releases its grip on us, I would love to interview her. Meanwhile, you can follow Ironside Bird Rescue on Facebook, and I love it when she shows videos of the birds that she releases, and of course all the birds that she, she keeps permanently because they are not well enough to be released. This poisoning issue can be avoided by switching from lead to non-toxic ammo. Change may be difficult, and yes, it may cost a little more, but isn't our national bird, the glorious bald eagle, worth it? I think so. I have more information on that on the website for you to check out if you want. And now for Out of the Box. This segment focuses on the edges of our state, spotlighting a community you may come through if you drive to Wyoming. And today's pick is Ogallala, Nebraska. In the 1800s, ranchers like Mary and her family sold their cattle and often they were transported east to Chicago via rail, coming right through Ogallala, Nebraska. I made that connection when I looked at an old railway map, which is posted on the website. My daughter Sophia and I stayed at a bed and breakfast in Ogallala many, many years ago, and it was, let's just call it a unique experience. This was way back in the day, before Airbnb, before I had a cell phone, before Google Maps, before I had a GPS. 
Sophia was my co-pilot, and she did a great job guiding me through several pages of directions. Remember MapQuest? It seemed to take forever because we were driving through a wild and unnerving thunderstorm. I was just trying to get us there and keep calm. We finally got to a little ranch house at the end of a long gravel road. Basically, it turns out that we were staying at Grandma and Grandpa's house. It was late when we got there, but Grandma had stayed up for us and she showed us to our room. Sophia fell asleep right away, but I just lay there with my heart racing through the huge cracks of lightning and booming thunder. The next morning, we had breakfast around the kitchen table, and Grandma told us a story from her childhood, how her family had lost their whole herd of cattle during a huge lightning storm. When they went out after the storm, they found the cattle had been struck by lightning while in standing water, and all perished. What an image! I wish I'd known to stop at the Catholic Protestant church in town before heading out that day. Yeah, you heard it right, the Catholic Protestant church. It's Catholic if you face one side, and Protestant if you face the other, with clever, reversible pews. In 1908, the town was too small to afford multiple church buildings, so a group of schoolgirls held bake sales and raised 60% of the $1,200 needed to build the church. And maybe I will get to see it, because I definitely want to return to Ogallala between December and February to go to the Eagle Viewing Facility that's provided by the Central Nebraska Power Company. In case you do too, I have a link to that in the show notes on the website. So that's it. It's time to close the gate on this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about ranching in Wyoming. I'd like to tip my hat to Mary Flitner. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I highly recommend her book, My Ranch Too. She has a way of closing each chapter with a zinger of a sentence that I just love. Please subscribe to the podcast for more wonderful Wyoming in your feed. Check out the website with links to all the things that I talk about. It's at wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. If you have any questions or suggestions or corrections, email me, wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. And follow me on Instagram, wyomingmy307, all one word. Happy trails to you until we meet again. <music>